when Brother Max spoke about stewardship today, the Lord spoke to me about it the first session and again the second. And um, yeah, we get unloaded, our things unloaded here. We need it all to yes. bless the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. That's enough. That's my daughter, Shelly. <laughs> Hallelujah. <clears throat> uh, when he spoke about stewardship uh, this morning, and then again right now, the Lord spoke to me about it. Uh, stewardship, you know I'm with the Jews a lot. I, I study things about the Jews. And here's the way they look at it, that everything belongs to God, and God gives each of us a stewardship over part of it. And it is our job to increase, increase what God gives us. We see that in the parable of the talents. And then you give an account for it. And so their attitude toward it is, you are given a stewardship. You need to increase it. You see so many Jews who are so wealthy. That's because this is the basis of it all. They believe they're supposed to increase it. And that they also believe that if you do not increase what God gives you, gives you, then he will give to someone else, and they will have the stewardship transferred. That's what he did. That's a, and but Now, this morning the Lord talked to me about that. And then this, right now, he, he amplified what he was speaking to me. And uh, I want to speak to you directly out there who are watching. You're at home, and you've, uh, you, you're really blessed to have this come into your home. But the Lord wants you to know that you too can partake of what he talked about. You too are to give. You too are to, uh, you've partaken of the spiritual things. You need to uh, share with them of the monetary things and of the offerings. And he spoke to me about a certain man out there. And uh, you are a man, a businessman. You watch, you've watched Pastor Mac on the winner's way. You really would be kind of embarrassed to come to this church. You don't want people to know you watch him. But you do watch him, and you're watching this morning, and the Lord wants you to give. And he wants you to give for your own sake, because so it can increase in your life, and he wants you to give it to this church so they can increase. So whoever you are, it, it helped me, bless me, if you'd say, I'm that man. But I don't know. You just Amen. follow God. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Now, <clears throat> I want to convince you that you are the last generation this morning. We are going to uh, look at um, what time it is. The name of this message is Time and Place. And uh, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 21. And uh, the disciples said, when, Lord? Well, that's everybody's question, when? And so uh, he answered them with verse 29, Luke 21, 29. And he spoke to them a parable, behold the fig tree. That's Israel. Israel's the sign. It's the time clock. And all the trees. Those are the trees of Old Testament prophecy. They're nations. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, know you that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. And um, verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. He's speaking of Israel. They're the fig tree. They were stripped. They were barked. They were put out of their land. But when they come back and they shoot forth into their prophetic place, I could preach this verse a week, 
then you see and know I'm about to come. And he marked out a particular generation. The generation that sees the fig tree bud, the generation that sees them come back and prophecies fulfilled is not going to pass away till everything is fulfilled. And I believe that's my generation. I was alive when Israel got to be a nation again. I was alive when they got back Jerusalem. I'm alive to see that city. Oh, my goodness, you should see Jerusalem today after it's been every Jew out of it for years. They've come home, and I believe we are that last generation. So I'm going to talk to you today about time, what time we're in, what time you're in. Oh, my goodness, and really what is expected of you in that time. I was returning from Australia, and the pilot said, we've just crossed the international dateline. Well, that's an interesting thing about time. You can actually leave Sydney before you arrive in L.A. No, you arrive in L.A. before you left Sydney by the clock. It's, you know, time is relative. So uh, when, we, when that pilot made that announcement, we've just crossed the international dateline, I heard the voice of the Lord. I remember its inflections. God created time precisely, mathematically, scientifically. God measured out a piece of eternity and called it time for his dealings with man. Each passing second counts off time until the end of time and its usefulness to God. Isaiah 57, 15 says the high and lofty one inhabits eternity. He didn't need time. But he established time because man fell. And he's going to deal with that whole problem in this period called, that we know is time. I write this in the front of my, all my Bibles. It's uh, Clarence Larkin. And he said, the Holy Scriptures are not a systematic treatise on theology, history, science, or any other topic. They are a revelation from God of his plan and his purpose in the ages as to the earth and the human race. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit during a period of 1,600 years, from 1492 B.C. to 100 A.D., some 40 different authors. And it all fits together, the beautiful plan of God. And God expects you to know your time and when you live and what's going on. If you'd lived in the time of Noah, you should get a nail and a hammer and help him with that ark. If you live in the time of Jesus, you better pack a lunch and go down to those meetings. But you live now. And what does God expect of you now? Time, which God invented, is marked by sevens. Um, when, he, he, when the Jews came out of Egypt which is a type of sin, and they were delivered out. Then they had the Passover lamb. And the Lord said to Moses, this is the beginning of the year for you. They already had a new year over in the fall, but now they're going to have another new year, and it's going to be the sacred calendar. And he, God, establishes a sacred calendar. In time, he has dates that he's circled. He's got his own calendar. He doesn't go by hours. He circles dates on that calendar. And those dates mark points in his redemption of mankind and redemption of the earth. And so here is the calendar 
uh, the, the chart of the feasts, please. The chart of the, of the dates of the feast. Bless the Lord. Um, these are the Moeds. Moed means appointed time, fixed date. So when they came out, it was springtime. And he established for them uh, seven feasts. You can find these in... Uh, you can find them in Exodus 12. You can find them in Leviticus 23. Now, there are seven of them. Time is marked with seven. We have seven days in a week. So there are seven of these dates. This is the calendar of redemption. These are redemptive dates. Every one of them is prophetic. Every one of them has a harvest. Every one of them celebrates a, an, a, a time, a historical time in the Jews. Remember, they're the ones we watch. But every one of them will be fulfilled. The first four were fulfilled at his first coming. The last three will be fulfilled at his second coming. Passover, the lamb on the doorpost, he's the Passover lamb. The same day Passover begins, a week of unleavened bread begins seven days. And believe you me, I've been there and you get tired of matzah. Seven days. Leaven is a type of sin Jesus handled the sin problem. At the end of the week, you're going to have the last three of them are within one week, one week's time. The last one is first fruits. At the end of this week of days, they went down to the feast. They, they had loaves now, and they waved them before the feast. These are barley loaves, and that's first fruits offering. First fruits, Jesus, this is the type of resurrection. It says in the Bible that Jesus in Corinthians is our first fruits of resurrection. And after that, each man is resurrected in his order. So those three have been fulfilled by Jesus. And then you count 40 days. You actually count 49 plus 1. And you come to what we call Pentecost. Um, it's in the, in the Jews and in the Bible it's called Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. It celebrates the time when the written word came and the people were all in Jerusalem and they were awaiting the fullness of this feast date, this next date on the Moed calendar, and a rushing mighty wind and fire came and sat upon them and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now you have a time, a space in between, and you go to the fall and you come to the next three. These three have not yet been fulfilled these three do celebrate days in the past. Uh, the, the, the first harvest is barley for the first three feasts. The next one is wheat. And then the last three are the olives and the grapes. And so on the first day of the new year, the civil new year, is the Feast of Trumpets. This starts a new year according to civil happenings. And... Uh, the head of the year, it's called Rosh Hashanah. Or if you're uh, from New York, Rosh Hashanah, something the way they say it. I, I don't know how they say it, something like that. But it's Rosh is head, and Shanah is year. So the head of the year is Rosh Hashanah. It's the Feast of Trumpets. They're going to blow the trumpet 100 times. And uh, then uh, 10 days after that, uh, the Day of Atonement. Five days after that, the Feast of Tabernacles. These are the high holy days of the whole year for the Jews. And we're approaching them right now. The Feast of Trumpets will be the evening of the, the Rosh Hashanah, 
will be the evening, because with God, the evening and the morning are the day. So the 26th is Monday, a week from tomorrow. And that will be the beginning of Rosh Hashanah. And then the fullness of the day will be uh, the 27th. They will also celebrate the 28th. That's for a certain reason. But um, so we are approaching these high holy days, these seven feasts. Now, the days themselves are in a week. And uh, seven, it, there are seven days that God created, the seven days of creation. We have seven days in a week. And these all are the mathematical formula of six plus one. Six days you work, one day you rest. That's what the Jews do with the Sabbath. Six days you work, one day you rest. That's what God did in creation. And now we're going to see how time itself was, Moses was told, would exist seven days. Moses was told that. And he was told it when he went up into the mountain with God. He was given the written Torah. And he was getting the, given an oral tradition, an oral Torah. He was told not to write the oral. He was to give it to Joshua. Joshua was to give it to the next, the next, the next. For instance, the Jews are told in the written word, you cannot eat blood. But in the oral, it was told them how to kill the animals so that they didn't eat the blood. The, the, the ritual butchering. Well, you, wouldn't you hate to have to read through that when you're reading through the Bible for a year? You couldn't even carry it around if it had all the oral tradition in it. But part of that oral tradition is this. Moses was told, God gave to Adam, first created was Adam. I didn't want your doctrine to be off there, Pastor, on your joke. <laughs> but he was male and female in the same body until they were separated. Just had to straighten Pastor Mac out. <clears throat> So God said, Adam, I'm giving you a week. I worked with this earth one week. Let's see what you can do. I'm giving you dominion over the works of my hands, fish of the sea, everything. So Adam named them. But then the devil came, like a Shelley sings a song, the devil came around, sneaking around one night. And he said to Adam, said to her, you will not die. And you know what he did. And when he did that, and when they followed him, and they disobeyed God, then they handed over their authority. Say authority. authority. They handed over their authority on the earth to the devil. And now he's not in hell. He's going there one day. But right now, he's set up in the heavenlies, in the mid-heavens, this system of Demon spirits in the heavenly. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And there he is, and from there he causes trouble. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against these demon spirits. So that's what's going on in the craziness of this world. But it's going on because uh, he sees his days are about up. Let's look at the, the, the chart of days, and you'll see that his Day. You know, the Bible even says, I used to think it was just an old saying of my grandmother, their days are coming. But it's in the Bible. The evil, it says, their day is coming. And their day is coming. Uh, down here, Adam's lease, God still honors it. 
and he won't move and usurp authority because Adam was given a six-day work week. He handed it over to the devil. And we're now at the very end of Adam's lease. These six days that God gave Adam are 1,000 years in length. Second Peter says that to you, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years. In Psalms, it says, a thousand years is as a day in the night, passing away to you. So God sees this time that we're in right now and his dealings with man as 1,000 years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. Adam was told that these were divided into three parts. The first two days, the first 2,000 years, were days of chaos. Then the Torah would come, the written word to Moses. Then two days of the Torah, the law. Then Messiah would come at the end of two days. And then you would have the end of days, which are the days of the Messiah. Well, in Sanhedrin, Tractate, Talmud, Talbud Tractate 97a, Sanhedrin, it is written, everything's written exactly like God said it would be. This time is to exist 7,000 years. And it says, there's an asterisk by the end of that fourth day, and where it says that he will come at the end of the fourth day, the Jews have an asterisk in the Babylonian Talmud which says... He didn't come because we weren't ready. They dare not change what God has said in the oral tradition. They dare not change it. But they put an asterisk because they had to explain why he hadn't come. And they said, we, we weren't worthy. But we know that he did come. And that when he did come, he made us worthy. Bless the Lord. And to this group that he came to and who accepted him, he gave the authority on the earth back to them. So there is a group on the earth now who have the authority given back to them. And that group is the body of Christ, the church of the living God. And that group is you. <laughs> Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. The years themselves are divided into groups of seven. So turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25. Hallelujah. God setting up his calendar. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and seven you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the Lord, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune thy vine. So he divides the years into sevens. And this seven, in cycles of seven, everything's secular in the Bible. But we won't go there. Seven years is a cycle. It's a Shemitah cycle. And I have made a little calendar that shows the Shemitah cycles and where we are in a Shemitah cycle. Now, back to the chart, back to the chart, sorry, back to the chart of days, that one. Where we live on this chart, 
It's been two days since Jesus come. You could figure that one, can't you? Okay, we're way over here to the end of the sixth millennium. Now, let's go back to the Shemitah cycle chart. There we have it. Seven years. You and I live September 2022. And the Shemitah cycle has, is just about to end. It's been going on here for seven years. We are, the seventh year of any Shemitah cycle is a holy year. Just like the seventh day is a holy day. We're at the end of this one. Next Monday, September 26th, we will end this Shemitah cycle. And we will begin a new Shemitah cycle. Another seven-year block of time known as a Shemitah period. A Shemitah cycle. So... On those calendars that are unfulfilled, Dr. Roy Hicks came to Rama, great man of God, head of the Four Square Church, west of the Rockies. He said, go ahead and pick out a date when you think Jesus will come. There might be a prize for who gets it. Well, if there is a prize, I'm going to have to share it with a whole lot of Bible prophecy teachers. Because it seems to us that the end of the Shemitah cycle, the beginning of another Shemitah cycle, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets has not been fulfilled. We are going to hear a trumpet sound. We are going to be caught up. Hallelujah. Now, the, the, the uh, seven-year Shemitah cycle, things happen in the year, prophetic things in a, in a cycle. A secular time. We know that the David, excuse me, Daniel's 70th week that's prophesied. In the book of Daniel, there will be a week that God will still deal with the Jews. And certain things are going to be settled in that week. It's a week of years. Seven years. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus called it the great tribulation. So that's when the Antichrist is going to come. And all that jazz is going to take place. He'll be revealed then. He's probably already here, but he'll be revealed then. So in that seven-year period, there's going to be God's final dealing with the Jews and the nations. And in that seven-year period, a Shemitah cycle is the coming of the Lord. He will come at the beginning. He will appear in the air at the beginning of the seven years to catch the church away. His coming's in two parts. At the beginning of the seven-year cycle, he will come to take his church away. At the end, we will have had the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper in heaven is based on the seven-day Jewish wedding celebration in ancient times. And even religious Jews to this day. It's a seven-day affair. So after we've been with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, read Revelation 19. It's really easy. You can get it. You're at the marriage supper. You're wearing white. And then at the end of the marriage supper, the scene changes and he comes back on his white horse and of power and you're on a horse behind him. Is it written? It's written. Revelation chapter 19. Go home and read it. So we come back with him. He's on his white horse. The Antichrist has circled the Jerusalem, he's infiltrated Israel. He thinks he can win. He thinks he can at last stop everything. And Jesus appears on his white horse of power. And we go into the millennium. Woo! 
glory. Now, um, there's a man, a Jewish, I study after some Jewish people. I, uh, I eat the hay and leave the sticks, if you know what I mean. And uh, in fact, the Lord said that to me. I caused you to pick up this book and in its pages to take a deep look, separating sticks from hay. I taught you that way so that you could know what I want you to know. For in the end of days, you are to see and know and you are to teach others. So that's what I'm to do. I'm to come here and teach you. I'm to come here and say, you're it. You're the end of the race. You're the relay. You got the baton. You're the ones carrying it in. You're the ones that the prophets wish they could have been you. The devil might try to lull you to sleep. He might try to scare you to death. But he can't do either because you know the word. You know who you are and you know your authority and you use it every day. Bless the Lord. So uh, in, in this book that this man, he, he really has a lot of insight into the timing, into these things that I'm telling you right now. And uh, the end gathering of the, they said, Jesus said, watch the fig tree. What are we supposed to watch? Watch them come home. Watch him bring them home. Watch it get closer and closer. And he said, the actual ingathering of the exiles back to the land of Israel from the four corners of the earth was due to begin sometime between 1986 and 1990. And we have watched it with our eyes. We watched Russia. We watched it change and the Russian Jews get out. We watched Operation Moses. We watched the uh, Ethiopians come home. And now, oh my goodness, it's just amazing to go there and see that city. You talk about cranes, building cranes. You never saw so many a city as in Jerusalem. How it's building, how it's increasing. These are all signs, folks. Wake up. He's at the door. Now, the rabbis taught that there will be a seven-year cycle after which Messiah must come. So he's coming at the end. They know that of a cycle for them. He's, becoming, he's, coming at the, he's appearing at the first of that same cycle for you and me. Bless the Lord. And then he has certain things that will happen. Oh, I wish I had time to talk to you about that, but I don't. And um, glory to God. Hallelujah. Um, the Mashiach must come before the end of the sixth millennium. We're at the end of the sixth millennium. You will be here. When Jesus comes. Probably. I think most of you. Hallelujah. Um, now I'm going to read you. Um, I'm not going to go to this. But the, na the, the name they have for Satan. Satan literally means in Hebrew adversary. And the adversary wants to stop God's word from coming to pass. He wants to stop it from coming to pass for you. He wants to stop it from coming to pass in Israel. God has said, I'm going to bring all the Jews home. I'm going to rule out of Jerusalem. So he has done his dead level best to keep those Jews from coming home. And he, Satan, Satan, the adversary, he does his dead level best to keep them from ruling in Jerusalem. He has the world leaders think they're doing good by trying to divide Jerusalem. And they're going to all get in trouble for that because he's going to judge them for dividing it. It says that in the book of Joel. You're supposed to read this book and know what God wants and what he doesn't want. Bless the Lord. Um, it's a plan of God, and you're supposed to know it. Uh, at a meeting the other night here in town, down in the city, a man told me, so neat, there were a lot of newborn again people, and he said, I've been saved two days, 
and I'm blessed. I said, well, praise God. But, you know, he had no idea of the plan of God. But I want to know how many of you in here have been saved 10 years or more. Up with your hands. Up high. You're supposed to know something about the plan of God. And you're supposed to know when you're here and what's expected out of you. Bless the Lord. So, he must come before the end of the millennium, and we're getting mighty close to that right now. Satan is trying to be, hold them back from coming, stop every way he can. God's prophecies toward the Jews are his word. So if Satan can stop his word, he can defeat him. God's prophecy to the church is you're going to be glorious. So what does he do? What tool does he use on us? Splitting, unforgiveness, divisions. Hallelujah. Now, uh, hallelujah. When it comes to regaining and settling the land of Israel, it's going to be a battle. We see it. A spiritual battle, a physical battle, an actual battle. The land of Israel represents the key to the final redemption. It does. God's word said it. And as such, it spells the end of the Sitra Akra's existence. Sitra Akra is Hebrew for the other side, and it's a name for Satan. And therefore, he will invoke whatever abilities he has to prevent the return of the Jewish nation to the borders of the land of our fathers. However, return to her borders we must and by a certain fixed date. There is a date that these things have to happen. There is a date circled on God's calendar. There is a date when you're going to look up and see him in the air. Bless the Lord. It is a final, fixed, immutable date for the final redemption. God's plan will come to pass. Hallelujah. Hmm. See, the Sitra Akra, whose very existence depends upon the final redemption, does everything he can to foil the plan of God. Thousands of years he held on to it. Thousands of years he held on to Jerusalem. However, history is meant to last 6,000 years like we've looked. The world as we know it is destined to undergo serious changes, spiritual and transformation. Hallelujah. And at the end, a complete renewal. So we're almost there. This is almost it. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. He's doing everything he can to stop God's word from coming true in Jerusalem. He's trying, doing everything he can to stop it from coming to pass in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I had the Lord speak to me about Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minneapolis. The Lord told us once to have four meetings, take all the old-timers there, the old-time prayer warriors, the ones who knew really to pray in another level on another, in another realm. And he said, go to four cities. For the west, go to L.A. For the north, go to Minneapolis. For the south, Houston. And for the east, Washington, D.C. So we went there with these old-time prayers. So I've been, I've been so connected to Minneapolis since those beginning times. Oftentimes, it seemed like I had to come here to get leadings from God. But on April 28, 2019, I was watching this service right here, like some of you are watching right now. Because I've been told by Lynn that brave Pastor Mac, one of his bravest soldiers, is going to, uh, the press is after him because of something that's happened, and he attributed God's hand to a healing, 
And so they're going to be watching. And she said, you pray, Billy. So I, I did. But the Lord gave me a word. And he said, Minneapolis is a major battlefield, an arena of great proportion for the soul of this nation. That's why I have stationed my strongest soldiers there. Here's, here's a couple of them down here. That's why I have stationed my strongest soldiers there, most pointedly in the realm of prayer. This has been my mode of operation through many years. The end of this age will reveal my victory through the saints in the light. That's you. For darkness, which seemingly operates unchecked, shall not and is not overcoming the light. All the nations shall see and benefit from what I am doing in Minneapolis. Now, he said, this is my mode of operation through the years. So when God said this to me, I could see it. I, I know about the prayer warriors that were here. I don't even have time to tell you about all of them. They're going way, way, way back. But here we know our, our uh, Lynn and Mac, and then we, you know, Brother Hill Halverson. Last night, and you can watch it, it's on archives, I played a video of Brother Halverson and how he prayed and how God sent him here and God sent him to Minneapolis. I'm thinking he's one of the highest prayer warriors of the whole country, and God stationed him in, stationed him in Minneapolis. Bless the Lord. And then I know others, and I don't have time to uh, talk about those others that I... Uh, no, but I'm going to mention one to you, and that's going to be, um, hallelujah. Praise God, that's going to be Dr. George Washington Carver. He's one of my heroes. He was born, uh, his mother was a slave in, uh, in my state, Missouri. We've been down, they have a big place there that honors him, beautiful place that you can go visit where he was brought up and where he first started went out talking to flowers but he became uh some bushwhackers captured him and his mother they never did get her he he was found a little boy sick with whooping cough and uh, so the carvers brought him home took him in as their very own son and the mother she kind of petted him around because she knew he was kind of sickly so he never had to do any chores he just uh, could go and roam the woods and and he loved to do that. And he'd get up early, early every morning, and he learned to know God, and he learned to know the voice of God. Uh, bless the Lord. He said one of the first times that he heard God's voice um, was one of my most surprising answers to prayer was when I was five or six. I had no pocket knife, and how I longed for one. I was mechanically minded, and of all things, a boy without a pocket knife. So one night I prayed to the Father to send me a knife, and that night I had a dream. I dreamed that out in the fields where the corn rose joined the tobacco rose, there was a watermelon cut in halves. One half was all gouged out. The other half, plump and full, was leaning up against three stalks of corn, and out of it stuck the black handle of a pocket knife. The next morning, I could hardly wait till I got through breakfast before I scampered out to the cornfield, and there where the corn rose joined the tobacco rose, I saw a watermelon cut in halves, and one half was all gouged out, and the other half plump and solid rested against three stalks of corn, and growing out of it, sticking out of it, was the black handle of a pocket knife. So he learned the power of prayer. 
He learned how to talk to God, and he, he became a, a noted scientist that literally saved the South. He saved the South because the South, as their soil was depleted, they had one crop, cotton, and it depleted the soil. So he persuaded them to plant. He was the, a scientist, the head science, head of science department. He, he graduated from um, Iowa State University, and he, um, he developed... He, he persuaded, he wrote papers, he did everything when he was down in Tuskegee to get the farmers to change what they planted, and they did. And then they grew so many peanuts, and he persuaded them to go to peanuts and sweet potatoes. And they grew so many that they, the market was, you know, flooded. So then he needed to know some more products for the peanuts. And, the, and, the, and so he went to the Lord, and um, he said that, uh, I went into my laboratory and said, Mr. Creator, please tell me what the universe was made for. The Creator answered, You want to know too much for that little mind of yours. Ask for something more your size. <laughs> Dear Mr. Creator, tell me what man was made for. Little man, you're still asking too much. Cut down the extent and improve the intent. Then I ask, Mr. Creator, would you tell me why the peanut was made? That's better. But even then, it's infinite. What do you want to know about the peanut? Mr. Creator, can I make milk out of a peanut? What kind of milk do you want? Good Jersey milk or plain boarding house milk? Good Jersey help, milk. And then the great the uh, Creator taught me how to take the peanut apart and put it together again. And out of this process have come forth all these products. And it was in Minnesota when he said this, and he had these boxes filled with face powder, printer's ink, butter, shampoo, creosote, vinegar, dandruff cure, instant coffee, dyes, rubberoid compounds, soap, salads, wood stains, all kinds of things. I think 300 uses for the peanut, 150 for the sweet potato. And so he increased the market. The, the United States government called them, and we want to hear about how you do things. And uh, Thomas Edison offered him lots of money to please come and work with him. He wouldn't do it. He had to stay there, and he had to get up at 4 o'clock every morning, and he had to go in the woods, and he had to talk to Mr. Creator. There, he said, he got his orders for the day, and he planned them out. Now, near the end of his life, he's very old, um, he came to Minneapolis. He was invited to speak at one of the Campus Crusades for Christ meetings. And uh, he spoke, and he, he was, his voice was weak, but they said that he, he moved away from the rostrum, and he spoke, and his voice filled the place. And... Everyone said that heard him that it was the high point of the year in Minneapolis when he spoke. He went the next morning to McAllister uh, College, and he spoke there. He gave the peanut story. And then that night, Dr. Clark, who wrote this book and was a very spiritual man himself, uh, they were on their way home, and uh, he was in the car riding, and he said to, uh, to get the, to the train, and Dr. Clark had said, they gave him encore after encore, and he said, you know, he's a, man of, he, he's a man of science, he's an excellent speaker, but he's still greater as a man of prayer. So that day, as they were driving back to the train, um, he talked to flowers, that was kind of a, he loved flowers, he loved little flowers, he loved peanuts, he loved things, and he'd love them, and he talked to God, what's this for, why'd you make this? So Dr. Carver said to... Dr. Clark, 
Last night, as I rode to the auditorium, I was holding a little white flower in my hand all the way, and in the silence while we rode, I was talking to it, and it was talking to me. It told me some wonderful things, and the flowers have never failed to tell me the truth. It told me that there is going to be a great spiritual awakening in the world, and it's going to come from people up here. Minneapolis. Hallelujah. From people connected with you and me, from plain, simple people who know, not merely believe, but actually know that God answers prayer. It's going to be a great revival of Christianity, not of religion. A revival of true Christianity. It's going to rise from the layman, from men who are going about their work and putting God into what they do from men who believe in prayer and who want to make God real to mankind. And because I know that George Washington Carver knows how to talk with the flowers, and because I know that the flowers know how to talk with him, I know that this prophecy is going to come true. It's going to come true, and Satan's tried to stop it. Just like he's tried to stop the Jews, he's tried to stop Minneapolis. He's brought riots. He's brought trouble. He's brought every single kind of a thing you could imagine. And he, he wants to convince you that he's got Minneapolis, but he doesn't. Now, what it's going to take to stop him, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. We wrestle with these demon spirits. And the only ones on God's green earth that can do anything about it is the church. Once uh, the Lord had showed Brother Hagin that something was going, demons were going to come, they were going to attack Washington, D.C. He said, go home and pray about it. So Brother Hagin established a prayer group. They prayed, but then they got sidetracked. And Watergate came. And the Lord said to Brother Hagin, I'm not going to hold Richard Nixon primarily responsible, nor the Republican Party. I'm going to hold you because I told you. He said, nothing happens in America unless the church allows it. Nothing happens in Minneapolis unless you allow it. You don't have control over people making bad decisions. I don't know who makes bad decisions in your country, in your, in your city. I don't have authority here. I don't have authority in Minnesota, but I can guarantee you I do in Missouri. And I sit up there in the mornings and do this. I do the authority of the believer. This book tells you how to do it. Scriptural basis. This book, it's kind of based on this book. Here's Brother Hagin's The Believer's Authority. I charge you to take authority. I charge you to sit in your seat every single morning. Here's what you can do. You can say, in the name of Jesus, after you've prayed the prayer in Ephesians, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over you demons that are trying to work down through my governor. I bind you. I have got the authority to do it, and you are not going to work down through him today. The Bible tells us that he's working down through people, and they don't even know it. I don't know your governor, don't know anything about him. I just said that because I say the same thing for Missouri. In the name of Jesus, I take authority over you demons that would like to work down through our governor, that would like to down, work down through our senators. I take authority over you. You know I have the authority. But it's not something you can just agree is a good doctrine. You have to do it. You have to sit in your chair. Do you see me on this front sitting in my chair? I am sitting in my chair because Jesus... God told me in Romans 5, 17, they that have received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign as kings in life through one Jesus Christ. I sit in my chair every morning. I reign over those demons. 
I, I tell the devil what he can't do that day over my family, over my Derek, over my path, over our ministries, over our leaders. And it's habitational. The church in Missouri is responsible. The church in Oklahoma is responsible. But the church in Minneapolis is responsible. I charge you, go get this book out of their bookstore and do it every morning. Shalom.